So we're all here together. And uh, the monastic community here and our lay friends have been uh, on retreat for nearly two months now. And there are some people who are on their own solitary retreat time now. And some people just have finished a month of solitary retreat now. And so we're all gathered here this evening from our own experiences, our own lives, with the intention to uh, practice and listen to the Dhamma. And so it's my intention this evening to offer reflections to uh, help support us in our practice. I think it sometimes is helpful just to step back a moment and just look where we're at. You know, look at the beauty of this room. Look at the goodness of the people who are here. Look at the, the commitment and the aspiration that, that all of us would have to come tonight to a, a meditation and to a talk. And just to let that sense of the beauty of the environment we're in, the goodness, the safety, the good intention, let it permeate. Let it permeate one's own being so that one knows it very deeply. It's not something to overlook. It's not something to make little of. It's the opposite. It's actually something to pay attention to and to make much of. And there are reasons for that. One is because there's just a lovely feeling when we are able to experience the ease and well-being and the joy and the gratitude of, of living in such a benevolent, kind, wholesome place with such skillful intent amongst the people that we live with. But when we actually feel that in ourselves, when we begin to appreciate that in ourselves, when we begin to see our own goodness, when we begin to appreciate our own aspiration, when we begin to realize that actually our, our willingness to show up and to do this work is worthy of respect, then our own access to our own goodness is a basis a foundation that allows us then to do the work that we need to do. It gives us the strength, it gives us the courage. A couple of years ago now, before I came back to England, I was in Australia and I had the very good fortune of spending a little bit of time in the desert of Australia. Then I was with a friend and uh, she was living in an Aboriginal community a couple hundred miles away from Uluru. And she was very intent on bringing me to that village so that I could experience it. And there was a man who was there who was the art director. And his intention of coming into this community was just to see if he could help people connect with their own talent and creativity and allow them, I don't know, he didn't really know what he was going to do, but he thought somehow something good would happen. And so a number of the artists of the village uh, started painting. And then one um, 
school holidays, he thought, well, he, he wanted to do something for the, for the community that would help support, because the school holiday time was often a time when the children got into a lot of mischief. So he thought, well, you know, if there could be something healthy or constructive that could occupy their attention, then it would, it would serve everyone's needs. Now, I don't know if you're very familiar with Aboriginal culture. I certainly wasn't. But Aboriginal people, or at least the desert people, I've, I have never encountered people like, whose culture is so different from one that I've experienced before. And for some of the desert people, it's only 25 years or so since they were nomadic people, living off the land, wandering in, in the desert of Australia. And maybe 25 years ago in some of the areas, in some of the settlements, they were rounded up and placed into uh, villages with concrete homes, with metal chain-link fences, and, you know, given um, money from the government and told to go buy food at the grocery store that had sugar and flour and all the kinds of stuff that they weren't used to and, and, and basically told to get on with it. So a complete kind of radical change in their, in their life. And most of, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of sickness, and because nomadic people who are living on the land don't need to worry about things like trash or garbage, then when they're plunked into a village community context, they don't necessarily know about, you put the trash over there and, and not everywhere. You know, they don't know so much. They don't have systems developed like we have where there's recycling, where care is taken, garbage bins, where it's in the middle of the desert. They don't have rubbish collectors coming and taking it away. And there was garbage everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And plastic bags were on the chain-link fences, and it seemed as if, when I looked at the people's faces, the sense of despair, the sense of distress, was tangible. Something I could feel. As well as their beauty, their strength, and courage. Amazing people. Really amazing people. So Sean, who was the art director, decided that he was going to have a community project and the, I think it was the store, or the school, I can't remember what, but one building, which was concrete, I mean, it was incredible, terrible architecture. He, he divided it up into sections and divvied it up into the community and gave each family a, a section and said, paint, I'll supply the paints, you paint, paint whatever you like. Now, for Aboriginal people, painting is like part of their, the essence of their being. It expresses their understanding. It expresses their law. It is not just a kind of uh, idle activity. It's sacred. And I came, and when I came, what happened to be while they were still in the middle of their painting projects, and I was watching them, and they were spectacular, these murals, 
vibrant, alive, colorful, full of movement. And through the expression of these murals, some of the depth, the tone, the quality of their own culture, their own lives, their own understanding, had in a very tangible impact. But what was fascinating to me, as well as to Sean, as he was explaining this whole process of how this had come to be, was that as we were watching them paint, we were also looking around. And the first time ever that he'd ever known, people began cleaning up the garbage and cleaning up their yards and taking the junk cars away and putting them in a particular place and taking the plastic bags off the chain link fences and raking the yards and no one had said or organized anything. It just came as a result of seeing their own beauty, their own depth, the own expression of their own innate being in such a beautiful and vibrant way that the natural consequence of that was an interest and a willingness to begin to take care in a way that they never had before. And so when we take time to reflect on the goodness of our lives, when we take time to contemplate the goodness of the situation that we're in, it's not insignificant. It gives us the strength to begin to attend to that which has been uncared for, unattended. A while ago when I was um, teaching a a retreat um, in Ireland, I was speaking with the sister who had joined me for that retreat. And I said that, you know, because of some of the discussions that we had had with some of the retreatants, it seemed to me that uh, an important topic to uh, contemplate was right effort in our practice. And specifically how it relates to fear, aggression, and sexuality. And so a number of months ago, it was a, a kind of aditana to think, well, maybe the next time I speak, this is what I'll talk about. Now, right effort in practice is a, is a really important part of what we're doing here. What is the appropriate response and what is the appropriate application in meditation in our lives? And on some level, it's actually very, very simple. It's to cultivate wholesome states of mind and to allow unwholesome states of mind to end. Pretty simple. But the territory 
the application of this often requires entering into the field and looking at what is it actually that we're dealing with and how can one cultivate skillful states of mind and allow unskillful states to end. And so we leave then the simplicity and enter into the complexity of the way things express themselves and then how we relate to that. But we can always return to the simplicity. We can always go back to the simple fact of allowing wholesome things to increase and allowing unwholesome things to find a resting and ending. And one can see on a retreat in meditation There are many different kinds of efforts that are required. The effort to pick up an object. The quality of attention to sustain contact with that object. The capacity to change themes. And the ability to put things aside, put things down. When we watch the trees blowing, you can see that they need to be rooted, but they also need to be flexible. If they're not sufficiently flexible, then when the winds come, the branches break. If they're not sufficiently rooted, then they topple over. So that we can see in the natural world around us examples of qualities that need to be brought into our practice to sustain us. (coughs) Fear is an important theme to contemplate to see how it moves us, how it can underlie many aspects of our lives. The fear of being alone or rejected, the fear of being blamed, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of pain, the fear of death, the fear of annihilation, the fear of being out of control, the fear of not being, of not being able to locate oneself. But every kind of fear is fear. There are many expressions of it but it has a common taste. And it can probably fit into a spectrum 
from extreme fear to fear that is so subtle that it's imperceptible. But when we begin to register how fear operates in our lives, begin to understand how to bring attention to fear, how to bring balance to the body and the mind when one is experiencing fear, then it doesn't matter so much the kind or the type or the characteristic of the fear that one's experiencing. One develop resources in order to deal with it. We have a hose at the Rochana, which has got so kinked and so twisted that it's impossible for water to run through it. The only thing it's useful for now is for unplugging the drain when the drain gets blocked up. And so you can see that when you've got a hose pipe or something and it has a crimp in it, the crimp is, retains, the hose retains the memory of the place where it's been bent or twisted. And if you're careful and untwist it, you can curl it back up again and the water will still run through, but it has a memory of where it's been bent or twisted or crimped. And if you're not careful, it will crimp again in the same place. Now, I have lived a lot of my life completely unaware of the fact that much of my action was governed by fear. And it looked very much the opposite. It looked like I was making all kinds of courageous choices and doing all kinds of courageous things. But what was happening was is, is, is that it was using disguises in order to mask itself. So in my own personal circumstance, because fear was something which was insidious in much of what I did, I had an, a way of not being able to register that it was there. It was operating and there wasn't clear awareness that it was present. It would take on disguises or masks as something that looked brave and courageous. And so I had to learn how to figure out it was fear underneath the mask. And to do that took finding a place of safety where I could then begin to actually experience the fear. There needed a place of safety, of comfort, of confidence, there needed to be sufficient ease and well-being in the body and the mind in order to begin to contemplate fear and the layers of fear and the way fear had motivated. So, because in my own personal makeup, there's a way in which fear takes on disguises, there's a crimp in the hosepipe then there needs to be a skillful means to begin to allow this hose to unravel itself, to allow fear to be experienced as simply as fear. And in my own experience, I've developed certain tools or techniques to use for that. So there needs to be a certain amount of ease and well-being and there needs to be a certain amount of steadiness of mind 
And then when these two ingredients are present, one can gently turn one's attention to the fear. Now I remember a time when I was living in Australia, in a remote place, and I was experiencing a tremendous amount of fear. I mean, there was nothing happening. Nobody was shooting me. I mean, there was nothing. It was, it was not an external experience. It was an internal one. But I was living in an isolated place, very far away. And, and I was actually frightened that I was going to go mad. But I couldn't accept that that's actually what I was frightened about. I was just terrified. And so I would collect my meal at the kitchen, which was a 20-minute walk in the village, which was a 20-minute walk away from where my hut was. And I'd be walking back to my hut, which was a beautiful hut, and I just loved this hut, and it was in such an incredible, beautiful place. And I'd be shaking in my sandals, praying that I could manage to get through another day. Because I was so terrified, absolutely terrified. And I remember during that time, Ajahn Viradamo came to visit, and Ajahn Kalyano and one of the monks, young monks, who were about to set up the monastery in Australia, wanted to come and speak to Ajahn Viradamo about uh, his experience, because he had quite a lot of experience setting up monasteries, and they were just about to set up a monastery and wanted to get some uh, advice, really. And Ajahn Kalyana was asking me a story about what had happened to me when I was in India, which was quite terrifying. And, and the story is quite dramatic, and people normally get caught on the drama. And he wasn't at all interested in the drama. He was just interested in the mind states. He was interested in knowing what happened to allow such an intense experience of fear to transition into a complete experience of surrender. And he asked me how I was. And I said, I was terrified. And he said, why? You know, you keep precepts. What's the problem? I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> what a naive person. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even know myself to be able to say, but there are lots of reasons why a person can be frightened if they keep precepts. <laughs> but what was helpful for me was, was the fact that he wasn't caught on the drama, and that by asking me that question, it helped focus me on something that I had experienced myself, which is a fear that was enormous, that transitioned into complete surrender. And so I went and reflected back in my own experience. What was there? What was present? And I registered, well, what was there was interest, the capacity to stay present with mind and body, a sense of clarity, to hold attention with what was experiencing, and the knowing. And the knowing was not frightened. And with these things, seeing fear as fear, there was an experience of surrender. There was no more fear. But when one is gripped by fear, and one doesn't actually experience surrender, 
it actually goes into various different layers of one's system, of one's mind and one's body. And it takes time for it to release. Because the, it's, the, it's like the body retains a memory of the experiences that we've held. And the cells take time to release that experience of fear. And so when an intense experience of fear hasn't transitioned into surrender, then we need to be careful and take proper skillful measures to allow it slowly to begin to release our system. Anger has also been something which, for me, for most of my life, has been quite a challenge. I, I, I came into a, a conditioning where anger was not allowed. And so it wasn't an acceptable thing to experience, let alone express. But whether it is allowed, it is something that is experienced. And if it's not consciously allowed into one's mind, then it does all kinds of peculiar things. When I was studying at the university, I was studying science, and one of the um, principles that we came up with, or was we were we were we were learning, was the the principles of thermodynamics and the second law of thermodynamics. The laws of thermodynamics are a little bit like noble truths. They are timeless. They're not related to culture. They're not related to time, and and they don't they don't. Um, there, there's something about them which is immutable. And the second law of thermodynamics, if I remember it correctly, is energy is neither created or destroyed, it can only be transformed. And so when we look at this in terms of our own emotions, we can see that when we are dealing with something like anger, and it is not allowed, or it is allowed, if it's not allowed, what happens is it's transformed into something else. But because it's not allowed, what's usually happened is transformed into something else which is then embedded in the system and then requires another skillful way of releasing it. So there's nothing within the Buddhist teachings which suggests that repression is a appropriate way of practicing. But there are many of us that come with conditioning where that is the only way we know how to cope with certain things. And that's another crimp in the hose. That's another twist where the water is not flowing through. And if it's not allowed into consciousness, it's going somewhere, it's doing something. And I can rest assured it's not healthy. <laughs> and so one needs to develop ways of, of teasing it out, of giving permission, of allowing, of inviting, of making space for something which in the past wasn't allowed. And there may have been very good reasons why one has developed this response mechanism. They usually are not there for no reason. 
but one can begin to sense the suffering that is created when something like irritation, ill will, or anger is not allowed. And so one needs to develop skillful means in response to the specifics of our own personal situation. And for each of us it will be different. What it would look like. I remember I was in Switzerland on a winter retreat once. And I was fuming. I mean, the smoke was coming out my ears. I was just furious, but it was so terrifying to consider the possibility of actually expressing any of this energy that I was I was beside myself with a conflict so I was in the mountains and I thought well you know I need to just go do something you know so I thought well I'll get up in the middle of the night when nobody's around and I'll go walk a couple miles out into the forest where nobody will hear me and I'm just surrounded by trees and and peaks that are several thousand feet high, and I'll gather up some rocks, and I'll, I'll throw some rocks, and I'll say some, some naughty words. But I was terrified to do that, absolutely petrified. So I took, I took incense, and I took candles, and I made a little puja, and I made a special sacred space, and I said, may this be for the benefit of all beings. Because just to do something like that was very much out of my own comfort zone. It felt terrible. But it was what was needed to begin to learn how to tolerate that energy and allow it to release and release in a way where it wasn't hurting anyone. And then slowly over the years, one develops a little bit more capacity to tolerate these experiences that before were not allowed. And more skillfulness with staying present with them without either disappearing or shoving them into one's body or dumping them onto other people. without actually even realizing one's doing it. Because it's not allowed, one's not conscious, one's actually dumping it on somebody else because it hasn't actually registered that it's present. (laughs) Complicated. So the effort is to be able to be with what's happening and responding skillfully in a way that allows it to come into balance. When there's very strong repressive mechanisms operating, there needs to be the counterbalance to allow it into conscious awareness so that it can then begin to release with awareness. The other thing I do is I sing myself angry bear songs. (laughs) I find that very helpful because it relates in a very kind of gentle way, as if there's something very childlike, which in fact there is something very childlike that's actually operating. And it just gives permission in a gentle way to experience something that in the past just was so painful and difficult. And it makes it light and silly and playful. I find that very helpful. And the other thing that I find helpful is just learning more and more to tolerate what this energy feels like as a physical experience. And learning ways that it can move around. So we can see with anger, we can clean the house, we can chop wood. 
We can, we can do creative things with it. It doesn't have to be a destructive energy. It can be used to protect. It can be used to defend. It can be used to establish clear boundaries. When anger is destructive is when it's used to harm. And so in our teachings, we often hear anger is a defilement that needs to be eliminated. And that's true when it's coming with the intention to harm. But what we don't necessarily see is is that there are ways in which anger can be used to protect, to draw limits, to draw boundaries, which is not about harming. And so particularly those of us who have conditioning around repressing anger, It's helpful to see the ways in which that energy can be transformed into something of usefulness. Now, sexuality is a big topic. It's a big topic probably for anybody, but it's a particularly big topic in a a celibate community. The, The fact that we are celibate is one of the kind of cornerstones of our lifestyle. But whether one is celibate or not celibate, whether one is in robes or out of robes, whether one is... This is an aspect of our lives, it's a part of being a human being which requires care and attention, it requires understanding. When we manage it well, then there is vitality, radiance. When we don't manage this well, then there's the opposite. And there can be an enormous amount of suffering around this whole subject for all of us. Interestingly enough, sexuality is a place where one can find both fear and aggression. And as with other Uh, experiences. It's an experience which has an entire spectrum. And maybe the spectrum can be categorized or described by the image or the example of of the six realms. There's experiences of sexuality that fit into the hell realms. That's characterized by intense suffering intense pain, intense fear, intense confusion. There's experience of sexuality that would be more characterized by the instinctual realm. There's experiences of sexuality that are very much to do with choice and empathy, as it would be in the human realm. There's the hungry ghost realm of insatiable longing. There's the competitiveness and the power play that would go along with the titans or the warring gods. And then there's the whole range of the celestial beings of experiences of bliss, including experiences where the mind and body completely drop away. And this is true both as a celibate as well as somebody who's in a 
partnership. It's not limited. Because the range is so vast, then the skillful means needed to attend to it is also needs to be correspondingly vast. Classically, in the scriptures, the common response to sexual desire is often the, given the antidote of a super practice of cultivating the unbeautiful. And this is useful when sexual desire is strong and out of balance and particularly activated by sight. But if it's not activated by sight, then we need to be resourceful in how we apply this. If it's activated by a longing for intimacy or emotional contact, then no matter how much we dismantle people's bodies, it's not going to touch it, because that's not where the problem is. So, coming to a place of ease and acceptance, coming to a place of allowing what's present, coming to a place where the hose is unkinked, and the water is allowed to flow, is part of our practice. Now, I think it's fair enough when people are new to the practice or young in the community. You know, diving into the deep end and some of this stuff is probably more than one can manage. So just keeping precepts basically together and coming and showing up for the routine and um, managing a bit of time and retreat is very much plenty good enough. And we can see how with each of us, no matter how long we are in community or no matter how long we are in the practice, we can get to places where we come across an edge where we feel, oh, this is a little bit scary, this feels a little bit overwhelming, I feel a little bit out of control here. And an appropriate response might be just to back off, just to see, well, maybe it's time to change the focus of attention and do something to allow this whole energy to come into a place of of more stillness so I can gather my resources and and then try again when I have a little bit more confidence. So learning how to calm, to still, to change one's focus, to allow things to come into balance is a necessary part of our practice. Learning how to transform a strong coarse desire into something that's easier to manage. We do that all the time. Sometimes we have emotional hunger, or we have physical desire, and we change the focus from that and we sit down and have a cup of tea, eat some chocolate. Now when we do that with conscious awareness, what we're doing is we're we are transforming one desire, supplicating one desire, similar sensual desire, but in a form which is allowable, manageable. We can also transform it with work. 
walking, energy. We can transform it with devotion, bowing, chanting. Sometimes there comes a time when it's time to face it. When it's just time or there feels enough strength or enough capacity just to look and see, I'm ready. I'm ready to meet the tigers. I'm ready to look them in the eye. And so when desire is strong and one has the confidence to face it directly, it's almost as if one can enter into the flame and not be incinerated by it. One is no longer needing to allow it to be balanced. One is no longer needing it to be different. One is no longer applying remedies to cool. But one is accepting it just as it is, present just as it is, aware just as it is. And if one is able to manage to do that, then there's something that's very lovely that happens, which is that there's much less fear of ourself. Because otherwise it feels as if we're just always walking around and there's going to be this tiger that's going to jump out and get me. I'm going to be unaware and it's going to capture me. And so there's this kind of hiding or protecting or controlling or covering or somehow trying to keep it together so that I'm not got by the tiger. Because it's there, you feel it, you know, it's there somewhere, you can tell. But when you can actually stand your ground and face the tiger, right, looking right in the eyes, when you can jump into the flames and not be incinerated by them, then there's a whole new way of relaxing into oneself. Now, one needs to do this with a certain amount of discernment. Because if you're not up to it, all matter of chaos can take place. One can't keep the precepts together. One can't keep reality together. One's brain turns to liquid and start dribbling out one's ears. All kinds of stuff starts happening. So one can't do this kind of practice where one's not prepared and discerning and actually looking to see whether one is managing with the territory where one is in. And if you're not managing, then back off. Regain your confidence, your center, your strength, and then try again another time. If all of our lives is about bringing things into balance, then sooner or later we're up against a wall where we can't manage that. And we feel a failure because we haven't managed it. We're not a failure. That's the nature of life. Life is out of control. Just our practice has not grown to the capacity to embrace that which is out of control. We're still trying to keep it under control. 
So in the beginning I said that in some ways it's actually very simple. Right effort is about increasing wholesome states of mind and allowing unwholesome states of mind to fall into abeyance, release, find their own resting. When we practice, there's mind and there's objects of mind. Objects of mind come and go, they change. Some of them are beautiful, peaceful. Some of them are not beautiful. Some of them are not peaceful. But there's always mind, that which knows. The capacity to rest in that which knows, in awareness, in the stillness, stillness of the heart is what supports the discernment to engage in the territory of what's arising in a way where it's skillful. Again, this territory has not been one that I have found easy. There's been intense suffering I've experienced for years and years around this But what I can say is is that every effort that I have made, every skillful effort that I have made, pays back in gold. So whether we are celibate, whether we are have precepts, higher ordination, whether we have families or partnerships, For me, what's important here is that this is an area where there's care and attention and interest to bring into the focus of our practice to include in our lives. That it's not something which is separate, where the vitality of our being can be released. The prisoners of our hearts can be released. To the extent that I have done this work, I see that there are no tigers out there. They're only in here. And as I face them, or as we face them, as any of us faces them, the result is peace. Joy. Contentment. Ease and well-being. The territory isn't peaceful always, but the result is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.